Hello and welcome to Complementary Training Podcast, Episode 9. In today's episode, I'm talking to John Kiley. You might be familiar with John and his articles already, or should I say critiques of periodization model. So in this episode, we, we will expand on some of the topics regarding planning and uncertainty. It is a real pleasure to have such an expert on the show. Before continuing with the episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Smartbase, for making this podcast possible. Enjoy the show. Smarterbase is a truly unique athlete data management solution for pro teams, colleges, Olympic sports, the military, performing arts and research. Smarterbase encapsulates the ability to integrate all forms of data from many different sources of technology such as GPS, OmegaWave, EliteForm and many others. It has unparalleled reporting features, offering the user access to any data in the system within three clicks of the mouse. Most importantly, it is a customizable platform that you develop based on your needs and workflows for your data. With support teams based in the USA, UK and Australia, Smarterbase is in over 150 organizations in more than 10 countries. If interested, email info at fusionsport.com. Hello and welcome to Complementary Training Podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking to John Kiley. Hello, John, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Vladimir. How are you doing? Let's start with critiquing immediately. So, um, scientific management. So, by, by Taylor, uh, it's a quite famous book and the one that highly influenced the production um, systems and manufacturing systems. But apparently, it has much, much bigger impact on other management systems. So, in, including uh, training, planning, and in this case, periodization. So, what's your take on on this one? Well, I guess. What led me to Taylor and scientific management was being interested in periodization and just trying to figure out the roots of it, where the theory actually came from. Because, you know, if you trace back some of the early writings, they weren't, they didn't seem to be based on any sports or training related evidence. And I just couldn't find out where, why people thought the way they did about training planning. And then it kind of slowly dawned that you know, in the early 20th century or first half of the 20th century, there was a conventional perspective on planning, you know, shared across domains from engineering, military, medical, and it, it really was based on the only planning methodology out there at the time, and that was uh, Taylor's uh, scientific management. And then you look at Taylor's uh, philosophy, and you see that he developed his philosophy based on a simple machine shop Efficiency. So he wanted to know how he could make parts quicker. So a very straightforward, simple routine task. And he found that breaking everything into little chunks, aligning them in a sequence, you know, basically just setting up a production line worked well. And he wrote a book in it and he was pretty much the first to market. And as a result, we all culturally thought, hey, this is great. Henry Ford was the primary example. He bought into it. You know, famously the world's first major production line. But, you know, again, you deeper into Ford's history and you see that when he took that philosophy and tried to apply it to other more complex projects, they absolutely tanked, you know, nosedived, crashed, wiped out. Uh, and he had some very complex projects he tried to set up with this very simple 
planning perspective and they were just complete disasters costing fortunes. And I guess the other thing that's worth noting with scientific management is that it had a huge influence. I mean, incredibly huge culturally. Stalin acknowledged in his writings that he was a big fan of it. And a lot of uh, Russia's, you know, our Soviet Union's five-year plans, sorry, Lenin, not, not Stalin, but uh, five-year plans were pretty much founded on scientific management principles. And then communist China, Mao Zedong had read the book as well. Uh, so you, th- you see something, a planning system that seems to work well in straightforward contexts. If I'm doing a job that's routine, let's call it simple in terms of it's not complex, then it seems to work really well and maybe enhances efficiency to some degree in some contexts. But you take that philosophy and you apply it on a wider scale and you are just asking for trouble. You're trying to impose a set structure on a complex phenomena and it just does not uh, lead to efficiency. I, I guess that's that's the backstories. And as much as I could figure out, that's pretty much where periodization came from. So we had, you know, we know people need to train. They need to train long and hard to become very good at their sport. How do we structure that? So I think what the early theorists did was pretty much, some of them were more intuitive coaches who, who played things by ear, but didn't write down their philosophies as such. But then the theorists who were actually writing it down, they wanted to anchor it to some framework, some you know empirical or pseudo-empirical framework. And the one they gravitate, gravitated to was periodization, again, based upon, let's break it into chunks, let's turn it into a production line, let's develop capacities in what we perceive as very mechanical, logical sequences. Things that now, and even, I guess, 20 years ago, we knew, actually, that's not the way the body works, or that's not the way training adaptation works, but it persisted, and it became one of, you know, it was like the emperor's new clothes. I think we were all afraid to point at it and say, emperor, you've got no clothes on. It's like, this was such, periodization and the theory of periodization had such momentum that, we all just assumed that the cleverer people than us had already validated it, so let's just roll with it. Now, I think the past few years that has changed, and I think that the deficits, the failings, the inefficiencies are, are becoming obvious to a much wider proportion of active coaches out there. So I think where we are now is it's just trying to figure out not what replaces it necessarily, but how do we reinvent without the the hangover of this cultural perception that we need to plan in relatively structured ways? How do we how do we manage training without it becoming completely erratic and random, which I'd suggest isn't good, but is not overly structured and uh, an attempt at forecasting the unforecastable in terms of what is going to happen when we do X, Y, and Z over a long period with this athlete. That's that's an interesting comment. And another one that I, that I find interesting from um, from Taylor uh, is this division to managers and workers, and there's like a really really big gap between them. So either you are managing or you are a worker. In this case, we we all know famous quotes that that athlete says like I'm here to think you're here to work and that that's also one of the cultural things that 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 particular movement Taylorism brought into training as well luckily as you said it's it's changing now we we, we get much more inputs from athletes uh, as well yeah I think that's a great point and they're actually 
Taylor had a famous quote when he said, all we expect of our workers is for them to do what we tell them. Give or take a word or two, that's the quote. So I guess that told you, you know, his attitude. It was, I say you do. The coach says the athlete does. No mention of, you know, feedback. Let's change this based on how you're feeling, anything like that. The original concept and if you read the periodization literature, you know, for 30, 40 years, there was no mention of the athlete other than the athlete is a machine on legs. I, the coach, sit in a room with a blank piece of paper and plan out the season. The coach, the athlete's only job is just to do what I say. And I think, you know, from again, from a modern perspective, that that just doesn't hold water. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let, let's cover another book that uh, that's quite famous <laughs> <laughs> and then finish up with the theory pretty much. So... Uh, the book from, um, I can't remember the first name, uh, the last name is Tetlock, you're probably familiar with it, you, you mentioned it a couple of times, and the idea of foxes and hedgehogs. Can you tell, tell us more about it? Yes, yeah, so uh, the guy is Philip Tetlock, uh, I think maybe University of Chicago or Car- Carnegie Mellon in the States at the time. So he was interested in, okay, let me scroll back a little bit. We all listen to experts making predictions all the time. You know, you turn on the news, you turn on a political program, and it's all about there's a group of experts sitting up there having a high-level conversation and predicting what's going to happen, what's going to happen with the economy, with banking, with, you know, whatever issue is current at the time. It's people making predictions. Tetlock had a really interesting idea, and that was who checks whether or not these predictions are, are right who checks the work of the experts? So he, you know, devised, you know, what was a huge undertaking, a 20-year study. I think somewhere in the region of 400-plus experts. Now, by experts, it was over 10 years working in a specialist domain, qualified to PhD level, uh, members of governmental think tanks and so on. So these were, he didn't pull them off the street. These were serious individuals, the type of people to get you know, pushed out in front of the cameras when any major event happens to give their expert opinion. And he didn't just ask them something so simple as, well, what's going to happen with X, Y, or Z? What he did was he asked them to, you know, rate the likelihood that something would happen over, you know, a rough time frame. So he he wasn't too mean with them in terms of tell me what is going to happen with X, Y, or Z by this date. He allowed them some wiggle room and he allowed them to shade it with I think it's probable that this will happen. So it was very uh, refined design. So lots of work. I think 10,000 questions, 10,000 bits of feedback information. And at the end of the 20 years, he obviously had to analyze it in various ways on the way through. But at the end of those 20 years in 2005, he, he, he wrote a book. And the hedgehogs and foxes analogy is really based around, uh, an old story, and basically the hedgehog knows one big thing, the fox knows many things, and that was the distinction. So Tetlock rated people very broadly as, are these more fox-like in terms of, are they trying to think of lots of things and then make graduated judgments, or are they hedgehogs that he characterized as a hedgehog will say, well, yes, I've seen this before, that's what happened then, so this is what will happen now. So that was, the, again, the broad distinction. I guess cutting to the quick of it, 
when they analyzed all the results, first of all, the major finding was, in general, all the experts, i.e. all of us, we can assume, are pretty poor predictors of future events in terms of what's going to happen. Okay, so that's a, a little humbling and but good to hear. I, when he analysed it in a slightly deeper way, he found that, okay, well, actually, the hedgehogs are marginally worse than the foxes. And I think that's something that intuitively most of us would say, yeah, okay, well, we'd expect that. I guess what I found interesting at the time was the difference was still not great. The, there was a difference. The foxes were better, but they weren't a huge amount better. And they were very far from perfect. So, you know, for me, and again, Thinking about periodization, I thought, well, periodization is all about prediction, but the predictive algorithm is how are you going to respond to this type of training that we're now going to overlay on you in the interest of getting to this level of competitive readiness come season time or come match time. And that is a form of prediction, a form of complex prediction. We're trying to predict the outcomes of a complex system or our we, uh, we perturbate through training a complex system, and what is the outcome going to be? So the first take-home is, for me, okay, we really don't know what we're doing here in terms of it's very hard to predict. Now, what we can do is look at the sports science and what we have out there, and what we have are group studies. We take a large group of people, we give them all this type of training, and on average, most of them tend to improve. But it's very average, and we know... And I guess we're getting more and more into, insight into how much how much individually variable we are, person to person. So let's scroll back to periodization. And so what my contention on periodization was that was based all around group effects. If you go back to the formative work of Matviev, Matviev took like lots and lots of data from Soviet athletes from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, three sports, averaged it out and then decided what was best, and then applied that en masse. I guess that was the, that was the legacy, or that, that, that was the foundations of, of uh, periodization theory. So yeah, to an extent, it was based on evidence, but it was very, very broad evidence, to the extent that for anyone working with elite or sub-elite athletes or young athletes, you'd have to look at it and say it's practically meaningless. So you asked what Tetlock's work. So that was Tetlock's first work. I guess the past few years he's done some other interesting stuff I think we can learn from. Uh, and that was he's been involved with um, really organizing prediction competitions. Now, this isn't, again, this is high-level stuff uh, with CIA involvement. So you have professional experts whose job it is to predict future complex events or events within complex systems, as in socioeconomic, political, and so on. But he also allowed in amateurs, so just interested lay people who agreed to accept a number of questions uh, on events that were ongoing in the world and then to make predictions on what's likely to happen. Again, he's finding some that really interesting and I think pertinent to periodization or to us and, and planning in terms of nobody was godlike. Nobody came near to very high success rates. The simple lesson from that for me is it's incredibly hard. We've relatively short lives, relatively small brains. Complex phenomena are, you know, subject to all kinds of random events. Multi-system, it is extremely hard to predict and we shouldn't become overconfident in it. The other thing he found is that there was characteristics for people that he, that he's now termed super forecasters. Again, I guess this work builds on 
the the hedgehogs and foxes work. So this let's call them super foxes. One of the characteristics of of this crowd, and some of some of them were professionals, but some of them were just interested amateurs who seemed to have the right outlook, the right mental capacities, uh, the right intuition, you know, but, so, but not necessarily trained. They just had those characteristics. And the key among those characteristics was the ability to look at something with a very open mind, to ask yourself multiple questions, to second guess yourself. So, you know, we all know what it's like when you're in a situation, working with an athlete, you're asked a question and an answer automatically jumps into your head. I guess what these people do is they suppress that first answer and then ask themselves a question. Just a second, in this context, is this likely to be right? Or am I just thinking that thought reflexively? So, in other words, people who second guess, who think deeply about thinking, and who put in a bit more mental effort, a bit more cognitive energy into making their decisions. So rather than being hedgehog-like and just saying, oh yeah, I know what this is, bang. They go, hang on, this is an original case, original situation. There has to be a novel answer. I need to think about this closely, carefully to come up with what I see to be a novel solution. So in answer, just to summarize an answer to your question, I, I don't know if Tetlock is, I doubt very much if he's ever even heard of periodization. But for me, his work influenced quite a lot because what he has given is insight into our human limitations in making predictions and in a way how are in a sense we, we get very poor feedback from periodization uh, in terms of if the season goes well we think well the plan was obviously good so let's use that plan again if the season goes bad we say well that plan was bad let's change it but in reality seasons go well or go bad for potential you know a, a million potentially interacting reasons so that's what I mean by poor feedback. Um, it's a lack of clarity in feedback. So I think, despite not knowing anything and working in a different field, I think uh, Tetlock has helped maybe pull the rug out from under some of the unquestioned pillars upon which periodization was built. Yeah. Generally, there's a, there's a, I would say, a movement, but there's a tendency to, I would say, reduce the impact of the experts. If you know, like, every, everybody can go to Google and, you know, Google everything. So everybody's, you know, an expert, which, as we see it in, in some of the domains, that's quite correct. So sometimes just uh, random people, random guy can, can uh, predict things um, slightly worse than an than, uh, expert, where in some domains, you know, expertise is still um, the way to go. So I guess... It's it's a double-edged sword, pretty much. So you you, you still want to to have someone who's actually familiar with the system, um, and not to say that um, ex there's no expertise. You know that that's not the message. I guess that 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 uh, no one wants to convey in this example. No, absolutely. And I think the way the way I think about it sometimes is ask yourself the question. If your child was sick, would you go to an expert or would you go to your next door neighbor, a man of the you know, you would go to the expert. Now, I guess extra layer of subtlety that I would add on on top of that is if I went to a doctor who seemed very dogmatic, looked at something, made a quick knee-jerk projection of what the problem was, you know, what the diagnosis was, 
then maybe I, I say, listen, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to a doctor that's going to look at this and, and put more thought before they answer and put more thought rather than just pulling an off-the-shelf solution. Uh, and I think the same goes for, you know, if we, we think in terms of sporting terms and, and training terms, good coaches come in all flavours. But I, I do feel that the coaches that are the best decision makers, that are the, the most, cons- that most consistently improve athletes, are the ones that are prepared to put the deeper thought into the knotty problems. They're not the ones that necessarily learned something 30 years ago or did something that they felt worked 30 years ago and then just got stuck in the rut of constantly delivering that because it's very easy for us to justify, you know, in, in a complex world, it's very easy for us to find ways to justify our stances, to find ways to defend our favorite beliefs, to find ways to deflect information that might cause us to change our minds. And I think that that close-mindedness is the biggest obstacle to to being really effective as a coach. And for me, sometimes, you know, how do you judge a great coach? Is it by the number of medals they won? I don't think it is. I know I know lots of coaches who had big success young and then kept doing the same thing. But because they had success young, uh, they created a conveyor belt where more and more people said, well, he coached so-and-so, so he must be good, so I'll send my talented child or this talented player to that coach and you have a conveyor belt, you know, and I know you're a Talib fan and Talib, I think, called it the the graveyard of evidence. Nobody looks at the dead bodies. Yeah, exactly. You look at the successes, but where are the dead bodies? So for me, I have a slightly different way of rating good coaches and that is around do they learn? Do they adapt? Are they doing the same thing now as they were five years ago? Do they look at each situation and each problem as original? Or, oh yeah, I've seen this before, so we'll just do this. Is it all a knee-jerk solution? Yeah, there's um, another, I would say, another point uh, I want to make. It's it's pretty much also comes from Taylor, uh, the Machu effect. So the Machu effect is, is you have, say, 20 coaches which are pretty similar, and then based on a pure randomness, someone wins the championship uh, with the team. And then everybody's, oh, he's doing a good thing. And then more money comes to that guy, more job offers. And he's still doing the same thing as everybody else. But based on that small, small initial, pretty much maybe random benefit, he creates such a gap compared to other coaches. And, uh, you know, I I know some of the the coaches who actually did that in, in team sports. So... They got hired. Um, the team um, either get the good good players in, and they won um, some championship or or league or whatever. And that coach is great now. So, and now he gets better jobs. He goes to a better club. Since it's the better club, the you know higher probability of winning because they have good players in. And you know that that that's how you create a, a, a great coach. So so that that's one of the the, the macho effect is also quite important I guess in, in this uh, in this example and as you mentioned the negative knowledge so what, where are the dead bodies and I, I hear that all the time on, on online so someone writes a program be it, you know I, I don't want to name any programs because I don't have anything against them it's just that someone says oh this guy reached uh, you know increased the PR in squat for 15-20 kilos and this guy increased that so that must be a, a great program um, and there are two things to, to this. 
So no one said, no one provide any negative knowledge. No one, uh, same thing on the reviews on online. No one's going to put a, a bad rep. So there's a higher chance of uh, saying, oh, this program was really helpful to me. And if someone is uh, failing on that particular program, there's less, they're going to be less likely to, to, uh, to write a comment or anything like that. So we don't see this negative knowledge, which, uh, and also, as you can see, a lot of programs, um, pretty much all of them work. <laughs> so, uh, and we as, as a consumers, we see, uh, we see those positive evidence. So these are the guys, uh, who made, made good benefits doing this particular program or this particular approach, but we don't see a negative ones, but we also see that that happens with pretty much every program. So, um, well, how would you address this, I would say, issue? So everything seems to be working, uh, and we don't, we don't see the negative evidence, uh, not immediately. Well, I think that, I mean, what you're saying is right in terms of if we get a hundred people and we put together any type of program, just throw the ingredients up in the air and see how they land and deliver that program. If, if people, especially if they're not very elite, any type of training on a regular basis will probably make you better. You know, sticking 15 kilos on your squat. I don't know. Okay. Is that important? Does that improve your performance? If, if you feel yes, then you think, okay, well, that is a result. Did everyone do it? Could they have done it more effectively another way? And pretty soon you're, you're into, you're into a, a line of thought that is, I guess you, we can't know the right answer, but I don't think we'll arrive at a very good answer if we just make a pick, justify it to ourselves, and then look at the evidence in a very, with a very positive bias, because it's our program. And I think, again, that for me would be one of the hallmarks of good coaches, good decision makers, is their ability to separate their ego from what they've done in the past and to look at things critically and think, not to think, what did I do really well? Or how good I, I you know, how good am I? But to look at things that, you know what, where could I have been better? Where were the deficits? Okay, identify the deficits. Now, how am I going to rectify those deficits? And how am I going to integrate that into my plan for next season? So, I mean, I don't think there's, there's no shame in failure. And we learn from our failures. But we only learn from our failures if we recognize them. If we don't see them, if we don't count the dead bodies, if we don't look back dispassionately at what we've done with the view to, you know what, I really, I'm, I am passionate about making this better in the future. How can I learn lessons? How can I discern my deficits? And then how can I correct them? Yeah. Another model I want to cover before I will say we, we switch more to a, a practical stuff is this, um, uh, or I think it's a Welsh world. Welsh uh, word, uh, Kinewin. Not sure how it's pronounced correctly. So it's Dave Snowden model showing the different, like, uh, four domains, four quadrants. Um, say on the right side, we have ordered systems. And um, on the left side, we have, I won't say disorder, I would say unordered systems. So on the order system, we have a very simple system that are quite obvious. So A causes B. Uh, and we also have complicated systems, which, which might be a, you know, manufacturing a car. 
but then on the unordered system, we have com- complex systems uh, and chaos. So complex systems show, you know, high unpredictability, but in the long run, you can, you can see certain patterns emerging. And the, the, the chaotical system is just really, really completely random. And I find this model quite, quite interesting because, uh, um, you, you can see the Taylorism, scientific management, it, the thinking that we can, we can find the optimal way of doing things. We can measure things and we can, um, uh, impose, I would say, centralized, um, governing, in this case, coach or, you know, having a periodized plan does work in, in certain domains. And in this case, that's a, uh, order system, so complicated and simple systems. So, it, you know, it, it seems to be working in manufacturing in all these simple systems, uh, but not sure that dealing with athletes and working in sports is completely order system. So we also have stuff from the complex system and even, even chaos. So some of our models that are based on, on the idea that we are working in an order system, in this case complicated, uh, as you said, are failing miserably because we are actually dealing with, with a lot of complexity. So my question to you is, um, first of all, what, what will be the s- sources of uncertainty in, in working with, with athletes or working in sports and what we might do to, you know, overcome or be anti-fragile under the uncertainties? Okay, so that's a big question, obviously, but I'll give it a shot. So I think that maybe the first, maybe the place to start is we are anti-fragile beings. Any biological organism that has survived that's still on the planet is an anti-fragile organism. To try and break that down a bit more, if we're to draw a distinction between complicated and complex, complicated can be many different parts you know, I, I think a good example and one I've used before is the Space Shuttle. Space Shuttle Challenger uh, crashed very famously, I think, in the 90s. And the result was a poorly fitting part. I, I may have it slightly wrong, but it was a mechanical fault. So one small mechanical fault brought down a multi-million pound complicated system. You compare that to a complex system. So, for example, us in our bi- biology. Uh, and we survive multiple injuries, multiple insults, we can lose a limb and we can still be alive. And that really captures for me the difference between complicated and complex. Complicated is, regardless of how much it costs and how finely engineered it is, it's fragile. All components have to do a set, fulfill a set role for the whole entity to work. Whereas if you look at complex, there's multiple levels of degeneracy built in. And by degeneracy, I just mean that multiple components can fulfill multiple functions. So there's overlap there. So you can do, and, you know, running is the example that's in my head in the moment. We can run the exact same stride pattern, exact same uh, speed, but we can do it in multiple subtly different ways. And that makes us extremely robust because if a couple of muscle fibers go offline because they're fatigued or prior injury, it doesn't matter because there's others there to fill the gap. Or uh, maybe you put a bit more stress through your tendon to make up for something, or you'll tighten up muscle stiffness a little bit to, to compensate. And multiple subtle adaptations redress the deficit. And that's complex, and that's robust, and that's anti-fragile. You mentioned chaos, and I, I guess there's, 
there's a couple of different types of chaos and in a sense chaos is a really bad name because it suggests disorder and erraticness and certain certain classes of chaotic systems are like that they're very disordered but biological chaos is an ordered chaos and again chaos bestows robustness because chaotic systems you prod them you poke them you perturb them and they adapt instantaneously in terms of they maintain function or homeostasis or whatever way you want to think about it by just subtly changing multiple dimensions of function without breaking. So complex, complicated. As I said, we are obviously complex. So what does that insight, how does, how, how might that relate to how we train? And I think for me, it's in relation specifically to periodization. I think it's just like chaos is a balance between order and disorder. And complex isn't erratic. Complex is ordered, but it's not completely ordered. I think our training needs to navigate that subtle divide between being very structured and being totally unstructured. I think our training systems need to be chaotic. They need to be responsive to emerging situations, emerging information. But like chaotic systems, they need to respond reflexively to adapt instantaneously, uh, to be optimally efficient. So, and again, tying it to periodization, the old perspective that you sit down and you plan at the start of the season and you just run through that plan. And we all admire when somebody sticks with the plan and coaches often talk about, yeah, you know, I just tell them what to do and they get on with it. You know, and you look at that and you think, oh, is that really what you want to do? Just get on with things. Uh, or do you want to pay a bit closer attention and know when to adapt and when not to adapt? So where am I going with this? So yeah, again, how do we get the correct balance between order and, and disorder in our training programs? We obviously need a structure. We need to know, are we turning up to the track or the gym or the pool or wherever it is? Uh, we need to know how long the session is going to be. The athlete needs to be given a sense of you. A sense of knowing what the shape of the week is like. A sense, uh, enough information to know how he needs to turn up to training. What type of motivation he needs to bring with him to the training session. Is it a routine, rehabby, injury prevention type session? Or is this a hardcore session? So there obviously needs to be structure. But I think again, on the other side of the coin, where we run into trouble is when we're overly structured and we just keep doing things regardless. So what would be, say, the, the sources of uncertainty in, in athletes? In, in my opinion, that would be a, a biological uncertainty. So we are never sure, on average, we, we might be sure that what might happen, but we never, sh- we are pretty much never sure what's going to happen to a particular athlete, especially when we are, I would say, going into a unknown territory, in this case, of world records and all that stuff. Uh, and, and then also, we might be dealing with uncertainty of the training schedule or, or, or competition schedule. Uh, some sports are provide much more um, structure in, term, on, in terms of importance of the competitions, uh, whilst some others uh, don't. And as a, as a coach, I did a lot of mistakes. And uh, I mean, sometimes I admit them, sometimes not. But uh, <laughs> I was I was working with one one boxer, and um, I create all these nice plants and everything like nice blocks uh, in this block we're gonna work on your work capacity and improve your aerobic capacity 
superior and you know endurance and then you're gonna switch to um you know max strength and then power and then you're gonna you're gonna do a, a, a boxing camp and then you're gonna compete and then that failed miserably because uh his his um manager kept changing uh dates of the fight so sometimes he said oh he's gonna fight in three weeks and sometimes no no, no we canceled that we don't have any fights in six months and that was pretty much really really um hard to plan so the way i approach the, my solution was not fit to this particular problem and i guess a lot of um predation li- literature doesn't take this stuff into account so what they take into account is only and in this case that's also questionable the, the biological side of training uh, again averaged which is also a problematic and doesn't take into account the risks and uncertainties uh, down the road and every time I see really, really nicely planned the, the annual plan up front, I, I, you know, I, I don't like it not nowadays. And um, last couple of years, I, I learned to, I would say, embrace the chaos. So as a friend of mine would say, and uh, don't plan too much in advance. Don't plan in too many details. And as you said, put some adaptability inside in, inside the plan itself. So being able to, to pivot the plan uh, and adapt. Uh, so one domain I found this to be implemented already is IT. So the IT changed from this tailor approach to planning. Or they like to call that uh, waterfall um, because they never know who's going to, how the market is going to react to a certain product. And they started uh, utilizing something that's called agile approach, um, where where they uh, don't plan too too much in advance, and they put some product on the market immediately, and and pretty much see how the market is going to react, take that feedback, and and improve the product rather than put a big chunk of planning and then big chunk of work, and then deploy. They they squeeze all those phases into smaller units, so. Now I see that as a quite, quite really useful uh, um, tool in training periodization. So rather than, you know, put all these um, sport needs um, up front um, and then create the annual plan, we might start with something that's quite, quite simple that we, we might, you know, we might use. I like to call it MVP, minimum viable program. And then once we start working with the athletes, sometimes I don't, most of the coaches don't even see the athletes before they, they put a plan on. So in this case, you put, put something that might be working, and then you do iterate planning. So you replan rather than create a big chunk of plans. Uh, you put something that, that's going to work, more or less, and then you learn from, from, from the feedback from the athletes. And you pretty much converge to a particular solution that might be working in your, in your situation. So having this frequent feedback, and nowadays with the technology, feed, feedback is quite uh, easier to collect. In this case, it doesn't necessarily need to be a competition. It could be, you know, monitoring tools and all that stuff. So it's easier to adapt based on, on the reaction. So you, you've been um, talking about this as well regarding the, the monitoring and tracking. So what's, what's your opinion regarding... Um, Regarding, uh, in this case, the, the use of technology in sports, are we 
are we completely, you know, overusing it? Uh, same thing for monitoring. So sometimes I, I, I see clubs overusing monitoring tools and not doing much with it uh, just because everybody else is doing it. Yeah, uh, I guess there's a, a couple of things there. First off, to get back to, okay, so I guess what we've done so far in the conversation is identify all the problems that you're likely to face when you're putting together a plan. But that doesn't answer, well, okay, so what do I actually do? And I think there are a number of things. I guess the first of all is a realization that whatever plan you put together, that's not going to be perfect. So disabuse yourself of any uh, dreams you have that you've put together the perfect plan. All plans that we put together will be fundamentally full of holes, inadequacies, oversights. What we can do to combat that is not have in our mind, I'm, I'm going to learn to formulate the perfect plan, but I'm going to put my best foot forward, especially, you know, in the early part of the planning phase or, or the season or whatever it is. I'm going to put together a detailed start so I know exactly where I'm starting. As time extends away from that start, I'm going to put a skeleton structure, but there's going to be less and less detail as time extends into the future. Now, I think it's important to have some indication of where you're likely to go because, again, depending on your context, you may need to, it could be buy equipment, book training facilities, you know, book your S&C coach, whatever it might be, but you, there are fundamental logistical planning constraints that you'll need to consider. Certainly if you're working with a team or, a, you know, a club, if you're working with an individual athlete, things can be a little more flexible. And I guess that's one of the things that periodization theory completely ignored. And that is the type of plan I put together depends on the context I operate in. I can be a lot more flexible if I'm the personal coach of an athlete that I have really high contact levels and feedback levels with. I see him six days a week or her six days a week versus uh, I am responsible for 40 squad players that I see twice a week. Completely different scenarios. I think the planning needs to be totally different. So getting back to the other part of your question in relation to technology, I think at the moment we're in this situation where we have this sudden explosion, this sudden wealth in, in available information. But I don't think we, that is supported by insight. And in a lot of cases, we have nice information that sounds like it really should be important, but we don't know what to do with it. Or we don't know where it is, where it lies in the priority list of, of, of information. Again, I think your use of technology totally depends on your situation, the context, the level of the athlete, the amount of contact time, the level of understanding and the quality of feedback you can get from the athlete. Again, if it is a young, inexperienced athlete who doesn't necessarily have a high training age or a high training understanding or doesn't necessarily have a hasn't developed a good communication system with the coach, then you might want to use quite a bit of empirical measurements, partly as an education tool, partly to convince, to show the athlete that they're on the right track, uh, and partly for uh, as training feedback. Go to the other end of the scale, you're with a senior elite, you know, international for a number of years, very good relationship, very high contact, you understand how they think, they understand how you think, they know your deficits, you know theirs. You cover one another in terms of 
uh, I know your predispositions and tendencies and you know mine and together we can collaborate to get something really good just by sitting down and talking. I know your movement patterns so well I can watch and that is a form of information to me. Then we could be lighter on the technology and we may use it for different purposes. You may use it only to highlight specific trends in specific activities, be it, you know, the obvious ones would be maybe sprint times, whatever it might be. So again, I think, I, I guess what I'm saying is that there isn't a right or wrong answer to any of these questions to do with periodization. And that's where we were led astray. We were led astray by literature that said, this is the way, the truth and the light. And the truth is, well, there isn't a way, the truth and the light. There isn't a perfect, there isn't a, this is the best structure. There is, this is my best guess at the best structure for now. But I'm going to be damn sure I'm going to be watching. I'm going to be monitoring where appropriate. And I'm going to be adapting to make it better in the future. Make, make a lot of sense. So talking about periodization again, um, we know about the, the famous I would say, fight uh, between Verkhoshansky and Matveyev. And um, when you look at it from this perspective of, uh, you know, we are dealing with uncertainties and we are working in a complex system, I think they are doing the same mistake, pretty much. And uh, they are both trying to pre-plan. In this case, um, the fight was more regarding the, the structure of the motor space, I would say, like that, uh, where uh, Matveyev, thought of the biomotor abilities as, as bricks, where someone is like lay, you know, laying the bricks, where Verkhoshansky was more, I would say, systematic thinker, but they both implemented pre, pre-planning structures. So in, in this case, um, you know, GPP, SPP, you could talk with, uh, or um, period of uh, extensive um, volume-dominated training, and then we're going to switch to intensifying training, um, in the case of Matveyev or in the case of Roshansky, we had A, B, C blocks um, where we can, say, overload certain aspect of constraints. So, for example, we might in block A, we might do a lot of um, heavy lifting, and then in block B, we might do more um, speed work, uh, technique work, and I would say, you know, quotation mark, uh, convert the potential into uh, something that, that, that could be expressed. But if you look at it from this perspective, they are both assuming that reaction will be there. And uh, in, in the case of Verkoshansky, uh, they are overreaching and they, they are expecting. You, you see all those nice curves showing underreaching, uh, overreaching or under, under recovery or however you want to call it, um, underperformance and then spiking up uh, with, with slight delay. And that seems all really, really nice. Uh, but if you look from this perspective, it seems that they relied too much on, 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 I would say, on averages and models. N- not sure how to deal with that at, at this stage. So in this case, we, we might we might have more and more frequent tests and don't plan too too much in advance. So not sure how those, I would say, long-term uh, uh, models in this case, meso blocks, might might work. So I guess my perspective on that is, and I, I totally agree. I think that. Verkachansky and Matviev, they had much more in common than they had differences between them. And it's no disrespect to them and the work they did and the influence they had. They were just like we are. They were products of their time. Uh, and they took the information available to them and they made sense out of it in their way. So we shouldn't judge them too harshly. I think 
but where we have erred is we put Soviet sports science, uh, especially in relation to periodization, we put it on a pedestal. We assumed, because we were always told, well, stuff hasn't been translated yet, and there's all kinds of empirical evidence, and really there was none. Again, it was an illusion, an illusion of scientific validity. So Vertoshansky and Matviev, they were both trying to do the same thing. How do I, and they assumed they could forecast the right scheme of training. And my contention would be, if we look at what we know now from a 21st century perspective, you can't do that. You can do it in a very general extent to the same, in the sense that if I give you an appropriate amount of training that doesn't fatigue you too much on a regular basis, physically you will improve. Yeah, we can do that on a general basis. When we get into specific, and if we do this for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, then you're going to go into overreaching. No, we can't do that. That's totally dependent on the particular variable, training variables, and how you as an individual respond to the imposed training. So from that perspective, that's why I say I think they're far more in common than they had distinctions between them. And I think it was a storm in the teacup and it ended up very personal. And from what I've heard from uh, one or two people that I've talked to from, from the so who were coaches in the Soviet Union, I think those guys used to have a good relationship and then for some reason the bottom fell out of it and they became very personally... Um, they had a problem with each other. So if I read something like Verkachansky's, and I know we're getting really nerdy here on periodization, but Verkachansky's end of periodization uh, from 1999, it was more of just like a kid trying to badmouth another kid, and I kind of lost interest really <laughs> at that stage. Was there something else I wanted to get to on that? Yeah, I, I think from our, again, from our 21st century perspective, we need to move past that hangover, that that illusion that we can predict the appropriate training. I think what we need to do is recognize the reality and then say, okay, but what can I do? What can I take control of? What can I do correctly? And you plan your start point, certainly. You plan it in detail, you monitor, you talk to the athlete, you inform the athlete, the athlete is educated and can give you and has a platform to give you feedback and you... Uh, you adapt, you respond, you adapt, you learn the lessons, you keep an open mind, and you keep pushing. One of the, we haven't mentioned, but one of the big oversights of the periodization literature was not just the ignoring of inter-individual biological differences, but an ignoring of the role that, uh, and you could call it background life stress, or you could call it psychosocial outlook, or, you know, it's been the influence that your persona, your philosophy on life, whether or not you are very reactive to stress or not reactive to, stress, to psychosocial stress, how that affects training. So for me, I think it's you know really clear that I can rock up to the gym on the same, you know, on, on two different days. I can have the same nutrition in me. I can do the exact same session at the exact same intensity. But if I am feeling anxious in one session and I'm feeling purposefully motivated in the other session that I will have a different biological training adaptation. And that's something that's totally neglected in conventional periodization literature. And I think it is something that we can take control of when we plan. So for me, good planning isn't rock up at two o'clock and this is the session we're going to do X amount of reps, yada, 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 on X time. It's, uh, okay, 
you need to turn up in the right state nutritionally, rested, but psychologically as well. And you need to be ready to do a session that is going to be, this is going to be a hard 400 meter repeat session. You need to come ready to do that. And if you're not, then we need to teach you how to be able to do that, to get yourself in the right uh, motivational space and emotional state, or, or we need to introduce we introduce it as part of your warm-up. So your warm-up isn't a physical warm-up. Uh, of course, it's part physical, but your warm-up is also an emotional, psychological, focused, motivational warm-up. So you are ready biologically, psychologically, to get the most out of this training session. But did you, you notice know? sometimes that um, either yourself or the athletes, uh, they, they come to a training, they feel pumped, oh, today is the day, I can do everything. And then the performance doesn't follow up. Where on some days you, you, you're pretty much sluggish. You don't want to come to work into a workout. Um, you know, you, you, you struggle with the warm up and then you slowly get into a, into a good, in, into a better mood. And then you actually hit pretty good numbers. So, and I think John Bros, who is, um, Olympic lifting coach from USA have a quite famous what saying uh, how you feel is a lie and it, it seems that in, in this industry we have all these opposing statements I would say um, opposing wisdom uh, where someone says oh no no you need to trust your feelings you need to trust how you feel uh, you need to follow your you know whatever feelings um, and then someone else says no 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 that's a lie you, you only need to be measuring objective stuff you need to disregard all these subjective stuff and again we have all this dichotomistic viewpoints and pretty much sometimes I'm struggling with how to to solve this conundrum. Well, I think you've put your finger on a conundrum, but I think it is a solvable conundrum. I think that what we're not talking about is somebody that turns up to training and is whatever, they've had, you know, an argument with a partner, whatever it might be, and they're saying, oh, I really don't think I can go through training today. And then you as the coach go, okay, no problem. That's not what I'm talking about. And that's obviously bullshit. But at the same time, what you're, you know, on the other side of that, you're not talking about, if, if you have an athlete that you know, this person is a grinder, they're not a moaner in any way, and they're t- turning up to training, and they are obviously not in the best, but they're going to tackle this really high intensity session that you need exceptional technical quality from, then I'm going to say to them, hang on a sec, let's just talk about this for a second. Is this the right decision? Do we need to moderate the session? Do we need to... Because there's no point doing a high-quality session if you're not in a position to get high quality into it. So I, I think that you dig underneath that problem a little bit. And if you have an educated, motivated athlete who knows the difference between I'm feeling a little sorry for myself, I'm feeling a little lazy. Actually, if I do this rep, there's a serious risk that my hamstring is going to pop completely different scenarios and I think at either extreme being lazy is bad but being foolhardy you know bloodthirsty in a foolhardy way that's just as weak for me the hard point is okay let's make an informed decision and let's weigh off the risk and is this an asymmetric risk in other words if you finish this you know 200 meters uh, let's say we're doing seven 200 meters and your hamstring is sore sore come rep five what are we going to lose by not doing the last two in terms of training adaptation over the long term versus what's the risk in terms of if your hamstring pops, what have we lost? So on one hand you have, well, our gain is we get an extra two reps, which might give me an extra percent 
on top of training adaptation over a month less versus what do I lose? Well, if my hamstring pops, that's a number of weeks gone and a big hole in my season and a big lump of scar tissue in my hamstring and predisposition to more injury. So for me, you know, again, with an informed athlete, that's the type of decision making you need to be making. It's not a binary, it's a yes, it's a no, it's, hang on, we need to be a little more subtle here. Is there a risk? Okay, what's the gain? What's the loss? What's the risk-benefit analysis? And I don't think we need to get too fancy about it. I don't think we need to get fancy about it at all, really. But I do think what you need is the athlete to be switched on and educated and honestly motivated, which most athletes are, and a coach who respects the athlete's opinion but isn't tied to, well, the program said seven reps, we're doing seven reps because that's what good, honest athletes do. Well, maybe, maybe that's what foolhardy athletes do if you're not in the right situation to knock those reps out with quality. So I'm going obviously the really long way around saying I think that that type of problem can be solved by education and building of relationships and understanding. I think coaches sometimes are too quick to put the blame on athletes and athletes' psychological predispositions. If you're working with an athlete for a long time, you need to have helped mould their attitudes and their approaches and and their personal decision making. It's not enough to just, you know, and it's it's such a standard thing. The season, the athlete, well, it did, did well or the, the team did well. This is what I as a coach did. The season, the athlete did badly. This is what the athlete did. So we have these all these kind of uh, inbuilt ego preservation type mechanisms built in, you know, that, that subtly and unconsciously kind of prevent us from finding learning opportunities and finding opportunities to push ourselves forward. Uh, there was one other thing I was going to mention there, providing you're still there and you haven't switched off. And, yeah, okay, okay. So you made a point about sometimes you come and you feel a little crabby, but you actually have a great session. And I, you know, that's obviously every day, that's really common and, and it's, it's really interesting. So I think one thing that you can do is do the warm up and then if there's a call that needs to be made, you can make it in a more informed way then. Because often I think it's more the athlete's perspective and how they're, they're, they're projecting how they're going to feel. But when, when they warm up, when they actually start to move, they find, actually, I'm feeling pretty good now. So I do think sometimes it's useful to do a warm-up and then do make the decisions. Uh, the other thing I would say is that this, you can't be a hypochondriac as a coach or as an athlete. Uh, well, you can, but it'll, it'll get you into trouble. But So I think you, we need to take a balanced approach. So we can't be overreactive and every time the athlete pulls a face or, you know, says something negative, then we're... We're jumping up saying, stop, stop, let's change the session. We can't do that. And I think there's lots of types of sessions. You know, not every session is high power, high precision, high technical quality. Not every session is like that. A lot of sessions are, you just need to do the volume. It doesn't matter. Just get the reps in, bang out the miles, clock up the time. And we don't need to be paranoid about those type of sessions. If I'm feeling relatively good or relatively bad, you know, those sessions, the the gains from those sessions are an accumulation over time, over over uh, projected training periods. So, okay, let's just clock those up. We don't need to be responsive. Similarly, if you're doing, if you're a runner or a swimmer and you need to clock up volume, we don't need to be paranoid about that. I think where we need to take real care is if you're coming up to competition, 
It's a, a high risk but high return type session, again, where you need real precision and quality. I think that's where we need the athlete to be on song. If you want to make those final little percentage points that are going to make the difference between first, second, third, then you need to make sure that they are ready uh, and that they are unlikely to injure. Again, this all changes if it is a session where you feel that this isn't really going to drive the athlete forward, and it, but it, but it might be uh, predisposing them to risk, and then you you make a decision. And again, it's a case of weighing off. It's not a binary: do we do it or do we don't? It's like what's the risk, what's the probability versus what's the the probable gain, and we just try and make it a bit more subtle and a bit more informed. And there's one last point that we mentioned: Tetlock earlier. And he had a very interesting thing from his research with what he called the super forecasters. And one of the characteristics that set them apart as better decision makers was that they adjusted their attitudes and their opinions and their projections based on emerging evidence. So in other words, you didn't make a decision and then just stick with that decision. What you did, if, if more information came up, even if it was small, you'd slightly adjust the probability of the likely outcome. So you think, well, that makes the outcome slightly more likely or more unlikely. And I think that's, again, an important, I, I thought that was important for, for me in my practice. I think, well, yeah, if something pops up, I don't need to respond to it, but I just factor it into my decision-making process in terms of, uh, let's say, if I have decided on we're running X amount of reps, and then I see one athlete go to their hamstring a couple of times, stretch it out, kick it out. It just looks like something stiff. I'll have the conversation. I will adjust. I, will, I won't necessarily change things, but it will be, I'm going to watch them really careful. I'm going to check with them after the next rep, after the next rep. And if I'm not happy, then we'll pull it or then we'll talk about pulling it. And I think that's a, a process that the vast majority of coaches do intuitively. Uh, and But it's an example of, how we contextualize that in terms of how we refine our decision-making processes. The one thing that you mentioned that it, it just do the warm-up first and then, you know, see what happens. Be because as well, how you feel is a good proxy, but it's never exact thing. And uh, this reminds me of, um, I'm coming back to uh, IT field and we have this um, lean startup idea where you never know if a certain product will work. In this case, it's going to make you a profit until you actually launch. Even if you do any service, uh, if you give people free trials and people are saying, yeah, high fives and this is a perfect product, this is what we've been waiting for, that doesn't necessarily imply that they're going to buy it. Uh, so the idea is to actually launch the product uh, and then see what happens and, you know, use that. So that, that reminds me of this particular scenario where we actually need to show up on training warm up and see what, what's going to happen um, because we are just assuming things. We want to minimize the assumptions. And again, I, I find, you know, reading stuff from different fields, I find, you know, quite quite links to our our domain. And another thing that um, recently I, um, I stumbled upon uh, and that's really helpful to me in, in solving this conundrum is, is, is Dan Jones' idea of uh, bus bench and park bench workouts. So for the listeners who are not familiar... Uh, imagine you are waiting for a bus on a bus bench and the bus is late. You're, you know, you're jumping from the bench. Uh, you know, you're becoming anxious, like, where, where is the bus and is the bus coming or not? You're expecting the bus, but it's not there. 
And then imagine having all that same particular bench inside the, the park. You're just relaxing. Sometimes a squirrel comes, sometimes doesn't. You can see a swan. You know, sometimes it's windy, sometimes it's raining. You're just there enjoying. And um, I guess the way we deal with this emotional or, or readiness stuff depends highly on what type of the training program we are on. In this case, or, or expectations, actually, of the training. And that goes back to your... Um, uh, uh, saying before that uh, athlete beliefs and expectations from training are really, really important in judging the, in, in actually creating the training effect it, it itself. So in this case, if if we are aware that certain days will be bad or really good, we accept it. We don't expect much. In this case, doing a, a, a park bench type of workouts, we are letting we are letting the progress happen by itself. We are not forcing adaptation. We are just adapting. It doesn't necessarily mean we are just, you know, shooting the pasta plate against the wall and seeing what's going to stick. It, it just means that we are not forcing stuff. Uh, where, for example, if, if we are on a, on a bus bench program, which could be pre pre pretty much lasted for maybe three to six weeks or longer with a break, then you are expecting stuff to happen on a given day. And then you become anxious because you are not feeling it on that day. So you cannot embrace I would say you cannot embrace the suck and you, you know, you cannot punch in the, the workout and then you become, um, you know, really paralyzed or I would say like really, really, oh, today I'm not, today I'm not ready because I already have all these, um, progressions pre-planned. You know what's, what's coming on a training or as you said, we're going to do a couple of, uh, 400 meter runs as opposed to saying, oh, we're going to do, uh, three sets of uh, three times 400 over or under this time. And then you become anxious on, on doing that particular workout. So in my opinion, the solution to this conundrum, if there is actually a conundrum, is, is, your, is your expectation of training, is the, is the way you, you, you put training in place, it's, it's your philosophy of training and how you deal with those, I would say, natural, natural randomness, natural variability. Yeah, I think... You make a lot of good points there. Uh, I, I'll, I'll pick up on three specifically. Where you started out was in terms of, again, if we go back to how we plan our season, I think we, we think deeply, we do the hard yards in ter terms of putting together what we feel is going to be the best start point and then introduce subtle change. I mean, periodization was all about change in terms of the mesocycle ends and there's a big change, or the microcycle ends and there's a big change. But I think the idea of trying something, seeing if it fails or if it sticks, but making it low risk, so a lot of subtle small changes that can be easily remedied, easily adapted, that is a much more complex and robust plan than we're going to do four weeks and then we're going to change to this four weeks and then we're going to change to that four weeks. And that's a brittle plan for me. So I think the idea of fail fast, learn, adapt, fail again. The second thing then was, and for me, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot the past couple of years, and I really think that outside of our world, in, in terms of the high-performance sports world, if we look at general health or medical, accepted that your expectations are a fundamental driver of how you will adapt bi bi biologically. I mean, I'll give you an example I came across the other day. Your life expectancy is heavily related to how long you expect to live. 
In, in other words, how long you actually live depends on how long you expect to live. And obviously that's kind of changing, and it's changed over the past couple of generations. Uh, as as other people started living longer, other then then we all of a sudden we expect to live longer, and our expectation of wanting to live or of our, that we will live longer drives us to living longer. And so if if that can happen on on such a fundamental biological health related. Uh, dimension then it certainly ha uh, occurs in terms of again me and my identical genetically engineered twin brother can rock up and do the exact same session under the exact same conditions and we will get totally different training effects depending on our emotional state that is in part driven by our expectations of how that session will will feel what its value is to me in my long-term goals and the expectations of yeah how how it's likely to make me better and in a lot of ways and you know I've I've worked with quite a few really good very famous very successful coaches and if you were to look at their physical training prescription from a 21st century perspective you think that's pretty bog standard you know that's that's not really clear that's quite fuzzy programming but what the athletes have when they work with coaches who have had previous success they have faith they believe in the coach and i think that belief that's incredibly important and it's a it's a huge driver of your training responsiveness that again has never been touched obviously in periodization theory but it affects every dimension of your being you know what if you are if you do not have that confidence uh, that this coach can help you achieve your life's goals, then you're constantly going to be stressed, am I with the right coach? Are we doing the right thing? Your sleep is affected, yada, yada, yada. It's a big negative spiral. Whereas if you're with a coach, and I trust this coach, this coach trusts me, we talk about things, he's explained why I'm doing what I'm doing. He's not pretending he's omnipotent and he knows everything. You know, he's uh, communicating with me, he listens to my feedback. I, I own this program and I buy into this program totally. That's a hell of an advantage. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you believe that this could be applied to, say, injuries? So you mentioned that, or, for example, some, someone is, we are more aware, or athletes are more aware of uh, ACL injuries, hamstring injuries, and it's, it's being reported all the time in the media. Now you have um, social, yeah, social media, YouTube, you know, athletes can look at the clips and it's all over the place. And assuming, assuming the exposure is the same, do you think that could be one of the effects of, of the increase in, in this, these types of, uh, injuries? So, uh, these expectations or, or being aware of the risk. So you, I would, I would call that like, um, the, the secret. So you are calling the injury in your head. So you're thinking about the injury. The injury is going to happen. I'm, I'm not referring to that. I'm just referring to to this fear that's being in injected into athletes, and we see we see the increase in, in injuries, the soft tissue injuries. Again, it could be it's most likely due the increase of uh, of exposure time. So it, even if on the average, you know, divided by exposure time, we, the injuries might be same. So the exposure time might be something that's driving the injuries up. I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of any research at, at this stage, so I, I probably need to, to, uh, to look into that more. But, uh, but I guess assuming that the exposure is the same, 
Do you think belief has something to do with it as well? Absolutely. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. And I think that in relation to injury, that yes, I, I, if, if you look at any of what, what I think of as the overuse syndromes, so it could be a physical overuse injury, you know, standard Achilles, plantofasciitis, whatever it might be, uh, and things like burnout, staleness, overtraining, all those things are related to stress. Now, part of it is the stress that's put on you by psychosocial factors, but also the other half of the equation that we don't so often talk about is it's not so much what stress I'm put under, it's how I react to that stress. So I think there is a clear link between if you are very stress-reactive, in other words, if you are someone who gets anxious relatively easy, easily, you are more likely to be injured, you are more likely to have burnout, to overtrain, and you do see certain types of athletes that are more vulnerable to that kind of spectrum of overuse type syndromes. Uh, there's another link, I think, that, that isn't quite so clear, and I, 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 you know, there is some evidence, but I wouldn't say there's a lot of evidence, and that is that, so if you think of coordination, how you move, and how well you move, how fluently you move, how robustly you move in terms of it's energy efficient and you don't get hurt, that can be impacted by multiple things. Obviously, fatigue is a big one. Localized muscle soreness is a big one. But other things like background stress seem to accentuate the probability that you will get things like overuse injury. And for me, an overuse injury uh, is, a, is a prolonged coordination failure where the stress of movement that's normally dispersed among multiple tissues starts to become focused on a specific area. So I'm going the long way around answering your question. Yeah, I, I definitely think if you are highly stress reactive, you are going to be more exposed to a whole, a whole um, group of overuse type syndromes. I think the important thing that I would take from that for, you know, pe people in, in, in our world is, okay, this athlete is high, it seems highly stress, stress reactive. They get anxious. They're really worried. They, they're always second guessing themselves. Okay. That's just the nature of the beast. That's not a problem. What I need to do as coach is design a system, be it a communication system, a feedback system, an education system that helps that athlete become more robust, that gives them a platform to maybe air their worries so you can placate them. We can, so I think the evidence suggests, yes, anxious athletes or highly stress reactive athletes are more vulnerable. We can't just, just throw our hands up. We can design systems to help them become more, more robust. That could be part education, it can be stress management strategies, it can be a whole load of things. One of the most basic things would be faith and confidence in you as the coach. And I think that needs to be nurtured. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, um, for, for last question, because this might get too long and we can talk for <laughs> days, um, the message we are trying to, we are actually not trying to convey is that everything is so chaotic or random and we are just, you know, throwing a pasta plate against the wall and seeing what's going to stick. Even if there's some truth to that, what we are saying is that um, in a complex system, you pretty much need to start with, with your best guess, you need to inspect, and then you need to quickly adapt. And it's not going to take forever. You're going to pretty much converge to something that, you know, that, that works for a particular 
athletes or athletes under under certain um, context at hand. But speaking of that, is there anything coaches or or I, w- I would say sports scientists can do to predict how someone's going to react? So you you mentioned a couple of times that you know the the genetic testing in this particular case. So, but even even with with the genetic testing, I'm not sure it can give you certain direction and saying that this guy might be more, um, you know, aerobically dominant, you know, quotation mark, uh, and he might he might respond better to these types of stimuli. But again, still the context at hand in this case, the life stress, emotions, and expectations to training will still gonna modify that stimuli. So regarding the genetic testing, uh, you know, what, what's, what's up and coming, in, 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 you know, what's going to help us or, or it's just going to distract us? I guess the way I'd start to poke around that question would be, I think anytime we overlay uh, a training stimulus on an individual, I think there's a number of adaptive filters that that stimulus passes through before it comes out as a training adaptation at the other end. And the first one is, well, it, dep- it depends on your genetics. So, and we all have a genetic predisposition that we inherit and it's set in stone and we can't change. The next thing is our reactivity to stress, which is predominantly or largely set in, in early life. And what you'll find is people that are very anxious in later life tend to be, have had some experience perhaps uh, in childhood that predisposed them to that stress reactivity. In contrast, and I mean, I think this is a very interesting field of research just to diverge slightly, but a lot of very successful athletes had some degree of trauma in early childhood. Trauma or surviving that trauma or developing the set of problem-solving skills that helped them overcome that trauma they were then able to apply in later life and become very successful as athletes. So, again, with stress, it's not a case. Stress isn't a bad thing. You know, you need stress. It's what makes you more resilient. If you get too much, you become fragile. If you get too little, you become fragile. What we try to do as coaches is provide the right amount to make you sufficiently robust to achieve your goals. Anyway, I diverge slightly there. So there's a genetic predisposition. There's a stress reactivity that is set in part by uh, early life experiences and in part by later life experiences. It's not just your genes. It's what gene networks are switched on. That's termed your epigenetic uh, profile. So your your gene genotype is really your toolbox. It doesn't dictate what tools you use and your it, it, that is more the epigenetic effect terms what networks are activated or not. And again, that's, that's set by your life experiences, your training history, and so on. So that's a filter. Sorry, I, I'm glad I've gone about that a bit too much. The next thing is your training history. That's going to influence how you react to future training. So there's no point in me setting, even if I knew your genetic profile perfectly, which I can't at the moment, but if I could, and I set your training based on that without knowing your training history, I'd obviously get it ridiculously wrong. You need to know what avenues the person has explored in the past, and that might give you an indication of opportunities for the future. In terms of if you've already maxed out, but you've done 10 years of squats, yeah, okay, maybe if we pushed hard, we get an extra 10, 15 kilos on you, but that, is that going to make a blind bit of difference to your ability to sprint or your ability to pivot or decelerate? I, I'd argue highly unlikely. 
So why would we go chasing that and throwing more and more resources after it? Why don't we just find another avenue to try and get those practical movement gains? The other filter you go through are, and I mentioned this already, it's what state do you rock up in? Not just are you fatigued or not, but what what is your psycho-emotional state? Uh, I say emotional state because it's your emotions that will drive the chemical backdrop upon which your training stimulus are overlaid. If you come into the gym and you are really anxious, really freaked out, well, you have a totally different profile of circulating neurochemicals and biological hormones flooding through your body and that's going to affect your training adaptation. Again, that's something we can affect by introducing a period maybe when the athlete comes in and it's like, okay, you've got 10 minutes, sit down, relax, just mellow out, uh, go through your goals for the day, whatever it might be. But something that intervenes to not just leave it to chance the athlete will turn up in the right state, but to ensure that they are in the right state before they've then talked to you and talk about the uh, objectives for the session and the structure of the session and then start their warm-up. So, yeah, so I'm going the long way around saying there's a lot of filters that any training stimulus has to pass through before it comes out the other end as an adaptation. In terms of genetic uh, profiling, this is something that I was dubious about, but we've done a couple of bits of work now uh, with Nick Jones, uh, Craig Pickering, and found, yeah, that it gives a bit, it gives some predictive validity. And this is looking at a limited battery of uh, genes associated with certain profiles, an endurance profile or a strength profile, and adapting training slightly around those. And again, I guess the logic I would put on that is any additional information potentially gives you better insight and allows you to customize training that little bit better. And, you know, if we think about what we're trying to do as conditioners of athletes, we're fighting for small gains, especially once you get up the elite end. There isn't any huge improvements out there, really. It's, okay, how can I change things? How can I manipulate things? How can I arrange things in a slightly different order to get slightly more bang for for this athlete's training buck? Uh, so for me, I think that the genetic research, if I'm to put my hand in my heart, it's it's really new relatively blunt I would say at the moment but even a blunt indication if it shines a light where previously there wasn't a light then I think that that gives the potential for more appropriate customization of training to the individual and I think any additional insight leads to a better outcome out the other end. It, it can definitely help the coach to put more emphasis on certain types of workouts but keep those filters, as you mentioned, you know, in, in, in decision-making uh, and, and be aware of them as well and not rely on one source of information uh, completely. So I would love to wrap this up um, or else we're going to continue talking for a couple of days. Uh, as usual, I, I like to finish up with, with a question regarding um, are there any projects you are working on at the moment? What can we expect from... John Kiley in the, in the near future and as always what sources of information can you recommend to our listeners uh, okay so uh, for the past couple of years I've been pretty obsessed with coordination specifically around running coordination so yeah I published a paper earlier this year and hopefully it'll be another one at the back end of the year 
and that's on the on the, the the back of some some research I did using accelerometers. I have a periodization and stress piece pretty much ready to go, so hopefully I'll I'll get that out there this year as well. Uh, and that's really talking about the concept of allostasis, which is, I guess, you know, and again, let's just bring it back full circle to periodization. You can't pick up this periodization article without reading about Hans Selye. But obviously Hans Selye was, you know, a great scientist, but it was 80 years ago. And his findings have been dramatically rewritten uh, by contemporary theory. This piece I'm currently writing is just trying to um, recalibrate contemporary allostatic theory with periodization theory. Now, whether it will fly, whether it makes sense to anyone other than me, no idea, but uh, we'll, we'll give it a go anyway. So so from the kind of theoretical front, that's what I'm doing. Uh, from the practical front, I'm kind of always tipping away, working with some injured athletes. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that will continue. And, yeah, that's it. Same as everyone else, working away, busy, busy. Regarding the I would say good sources of information. What would you recommend? In relate, are we talking broadly related to periodization? Uh, yeah, I mean, we can stick to the, to the topic regarding the periodization and, um, uh, yeah, training in general. Although similar to you, I guess, uh, uh, I keep reading the books that have apparently nothing to do with training and then they sure. ended, ended up being really influential on how I approach training. Yeah, I, I like to spread you know, I, I like to be a generalist and, and read, you know, multiple things, um, you know, from cooking to, to kids <laughs> and, and IT, and then I find uh, parallels to training. So anything that you might recommend to uh, listeners to, I would say, improve, improve the understanding of the, of the process of training. So I think Tetlock's latest book, Super Forecasters, is worth to read for anyone who, yeah, Anyone who works in complex in complex environments, which is pretty much everyone, uh, unless you're fixing fridges or doing something that is relatively uh, very much based on past experience and skill, then I think that book is will certainly provide insight. Uh, I think another book I'm finding interesting at the moment is there's a decision maker called, or sorry, a decision making theorist called Gary Klein. And his book, I forget the name of it, but it starts with street lamps. Oh, yeah. the first word, yeah. It's now, street lamps and shadows. Street lamps and shadows. Yeah, I'm so, currently reading it. <laughs> oh, very good. So, uh, people would be very familiar with uh, Daniel Kahneman's work. Klein has a very different perspective. But, yeah, so I'm finding it very interesting. Basically, the most, uh, is emotional... It, is emotion valid in decision-making or should you totally discount emotion when you make decisions? Which has been in the psychological or social psych world, that has been the, the dogma for the past few years, you ignore emotion. Klein is, the pendulum is swinging the other way with Klein. Uh, so that's decision-making and forecasting. I guess the other book has not to do with anything to do with periodization, but I just found it. Uh, really well written and really, really good and original story, and that's Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book. And I guess sometimes you just need to stop thinking about things and uh, work your brain in a different way to come back a little fresher. So if anyone's interested in doing that, then The Graveyard Book is a great way of doing that. That's awesome. Uh, I think I started reading some of his stuff, The American Gods, right? Yeah, that's, that's him. 
Yeah. 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 I, it didn't. It didn't work with me <laughs> with the with the ga- uh, Gelman, right? Or ga- Gaiman, yeah. Gaiman, yeah. yeah. Gaiman, sorry. Gaiman, Gaiman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gaiman. So I, I heard someone else recommending that book as well. Um, yeah, very good book. Um, he wrote Stardust as well. People might have seen the film, but yeah, the graveyard book is a cracker and small. <laughs> That's a key. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, John. Thanks for taking your time to uh, to do the podcast. Myself and I guess the listeners as well are more than than looking forward to reading your new articles and uh, uh, hopefully a book <laughs> uh, that wraps all this stuff in a nice package. Really, no pressure, so right? Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks again, and uh, you know, looking forward to talking to you in the future. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.